Welcome to episode 335 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Melrose, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis, and with me from Owings Mills, Maryland, is Andrew Brokus. How are you, Andrew? I am doing pretty well. How are you? How's Melrose? Uh, Melrose is good. The weather is nice. Fall has fallen. <laughs> it, um, I was about after. to use the same the same uh, verbiage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Summer was, like, possibly the wildest season of my life. Um, you know, it was pretty pretty notable. Uh, and and now we're on to fall. <laughs> Pandemics. Pandemics are real weird. Pandemics <laughs> are real, real weird. Um, I've been doing an exciting thing recently that I hope i'm not 100 percent on this but i'm like 95 percent on this that this will be available in the netcast store by the time people are hearing this hey it's andrew sorry to break in with bad news uh the coaching andrew videos are not going to be available as soon as this podcast comes out uh which will be monday september 28th i hope to have them out this week, uh, meaning last week of September, first week of October. So you can uh, check on nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com, or uh, keep an eye at Thinking Poker on Twitter, or um, I'll also announce it. There's a Play Optimal Poker Facebook group on um on Facebook, <laughs> which you might want to consider joining if you're not a member already, because there's good some good uh, poker discussion on there. But uh, so I'll, I'll announce places like that, and then the next podcast I'll make sure to let you know when that is available as well. Sorry for the tease. I uh, did hope to have it, but uh, some technical difficulties have delayed that. Uh, Carlos and I recorded something called Coaching Andrew. So the very first premium podcast that we did uh, years and years ago was called Coaching Carlos. And um, I wanted to get so like, I've been playing online poker. I mean, I really had not played much online poker in the last couple of years. And then you know, with the pandemic and not playing live poker, um, I did start playing some some online stuff and I was playing you know, somewhat smaller stakes than, than what I generally am. And I had the sense that, you know, I maybe could be doing like more exploitable things than I was, or it's kind of questioning like how much should I be, uh, you, you know what I mean? Just, you know, in various situations, yep. like what kind of exploitative things should I do? So I, uh, I, I wanted to hire Carlos, you know, I wanted to get some mediocre poker coaching and, yeah. uh, he didn't want to charge me for it. And I was like, okay, well let's do that. Let's, let's record it then. And then, you know, we'll, we'll sell it and, or, you know, I'll, it'll be on the netcast store he's going to get most of the profits from it so essentially it's like you know i get free coaching uh he gets paid but not by me and everyone else gets to listen listen in on um what i think was it was a pretty neat i mean it's, it's entertaining right it's it's carlos so there's uh there, there's plenty of like entertainment value aside from the actual uh strategy value and then you get you end up getting both perspectives i mean there's a fair number of spots where he was sort of asking me about how game theory would apply in a given situation and then also a number of spots where he was kind of telling me like yeah i can see why you would do that but no don't do that <laughs> yeah 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 no that's cool i mean 
Spoiler alert, you're going to sell at least one copy. (laughs) Do not try to give it to me for free. I'll just buy another one. That's how digital stuff works. (laughs) No, that sounds great. Um, And and I, I think it's really good. I think it's really good. Great idea. And... I miss Carlos. Is he okay? How's yes, Carlos? He, he seemed he seemed very good. Um, yeah, he seemed he seemed very good. It was good, it was good to talk. I mean, it's it's so hard to say because like I know that Carlos is a different person when he's not talking about poker, and like you know, so like talking to me about poker, I think is like pretty close to like one of the ideal things Carlos would be doing. So it's kind of like it doesn't seem right to extrapolate from like he was happy during our conversation to like he is doing well in general. Um, but as far as I know, he's doing well in general. Great. Great. Uh, it occurs to me, I should also say, because this is, has been a thing, some people may have noticed if you were trying to buy my newest book, uh, Play Optimal Poker 2, if you were trying to get that from Amazon, uh, the Kindle version was not available on Amazon for a while because uh, they had issues with some of the image quality in there. Essentially, like I had I had images in the book that were just screenshots from PyoSolver, and the actual text in the screenshots was not important. Like The, the point of the screenshot was like, look how you're betting so much more often on a king of diamonds turn than a king of spades turn or something like that so like the fact that you're betting you know 67 percent on a king of diamonds and like 23 percent on a king of, like the actual numbers are not the point but the numbers were blurry and hard to read and you know the, the amazon was not making that distinction of like this isn't actually important information it's just in there because it's a screenshot uh, so they wanted like higher resolution images or they weren't gonna like put the book in the store so i eventually got them uh higher resolution images and that is now in the amazon so if people were curious why that was not available in the Amazon store. Uh, that is the reason it has been fixed. So if you've been waiting to get Play Optimal Poker 2 because it was showing as under review in the, in the Kindle store, it is now available there. Uh, it has been available all along at uh, www.nitcast.com, which is also where you'll be able to get the Coaching and, uh, yeah, Coaching Andrew podcast, uh, where you can get the original Coaching Carlos podcast, and where you can get all of the Weekend Warrior podcasts that Nate and I have done together. And this episode today is going to be a pure strategy episode. So if you enjoy what you hear today and you like hearing Nate and me talk about poker, uh, you can get hours and hours and hours more of that in uh, the Weekend Warrior podcast. And there are, are um, two dedicated to cash games and one dedicated to tournaments. So you can get you know whatever, uh, whatever makes the most sense for you. It's like this, but dialed up to 11 and you pay for it. I think it's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Our customers are really, really happy. People love it, man. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, we've never had anyone who was like, ah, this is a waste of money. I want my money. And, like, I mean, we would give people their money back if, like, you know, if, but as far as I know, you know, I mean, maybe someone was just dissatisfied and kept it to themselves. But, uh, you know, I've, I've never had anyone, you know, express dissatisfaction after purchasing it, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about, or shall we, shall we strategize? <laughs> I mean, my head's full of ideas because we haven't talked in a while, and it's been a pandemic, and I've been like reading things and learning things. But like, well, wait, throw, throw something out there. What, what ideas are your head full of? <laughs> There's now something called Code Spaces that plugs into GitHub, and I just got off the like waiting list, and I'm in the beta for it, and it's like this amazing feeling of possibly my life is about to change, and I don't really know because it's my favorite uh, uh, IDE combined with, you know, like 
cloud hosting and all sorts of other cool features. And it's like this funny thing where either it's one of a zillion things that I'm just going to try out and then it won't stick or it's going to like absolutely change my life. As usual, I'm just speaking for myself and not for, you know, not in any kind of professional context. But like, so that's that. Uh, I'm reading The Grapes of Wrath, and nobody ever told me that it would remind me of reading Anne Rand in high school. Like, the point of the politics is different, but, like, just all of a sudden, he just sort of takes a hard left into <laughs> ranting and giving his own political opinions, and, like, the whole fictional thing is, like, uh, sort of secondary. And, I mean, his sense of character and tone and place and space is a, 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 a bit more nuanced and effective than Anne Rand's for me, but, like, it's very strange because like I loved East of Eden, absolutely loved it. Then all of a sudden I'm reading Grapes of Wrath, and it's like, okay, nice story, nice story, very interesting. I care about these people, and it's like, whoa, why does it feel like I'm reading The Fountainhead again? This is very weird. <laughs> like nobody told me it would be like that. So that's yeah, um, that's another thing that's that my head is full of. What else is my head full of? What else is my head full of? Just all sorts of things. Well, what are, what are, what are you up to these days? Um, I am reading Maria Konnikova's book. I'm like 60% of the way through that. So we had Maria on the show. Um, I guess it's been a little while. I mean, but it's been only been three or four episodes, but we've been, it's probably been like two months actually since, uh, since she was on. But I mean, I think any, um, anyone who enjoys this, this show or anyone interested, even if you're not terribly interested in poker, you know, I mean, if, if you're interested enough in poker to, to listen to this show, I mean, her, her book is certainly more, uh, more general interest than this show is. And, um, there was an interesting, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of interesting stuff in there, but there's one chapter where she discusses like meeting Phil Galfond and like some of the initial advice that he gives her when she's still very new to poker. And I was initially like patting myself on the back because I was like, oh, I kind of prioritize like telling people a lot of those same things and explaining them in very similar ways. And then I realized like, yeah, you probably got that from Phil Galfond. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know that that was like that we, we you know, separately came up with that as opposed to, um, you know, he just has has been one of the bigger influences probably on like how I think about poker. I mean, I was a member even before Run at Once. I was a member of uh, Blue Fire Poker back when he had he had an earlier training site that he was. Uh, I don't know. I think he was an owner, but in any event, you know, he was like deeply involved with it. And um, so yeah, I've, and, and two plus two posts and everything else, like both directly and indirectly. I mean, Phil Goffin has been a very big influence in how I think about poker. So that is probably more likely the reason why why those things rang true with me. Yeah, yeah. Boy, it's. I would love for a lot of really good work to be done on like the intellectual heritage of, of games and how poker thought evolved. Um, you know, hopefully this podcast is some effort in that direction. But I, I, I haven't paid any attention to Hearthstone in, I don't know, like a year. But back when I did, I was watching like the World Championships like two years ago, and somebody was saying something like, or maybe it was a different tournament. Like, oh, he's got to be pretty polarized here. And I'm pretty sure that ultimately got into Hearthstone from poker. Like, I can't... Yeah, like, how, how could it not contact. have? Yeah. But then that that also means that, like... Like, what if Jason Strasser, like, knew... Like, like when he was just some chemical engineer sitting in his dorm room at Duke. Chemical engineering? Something. He was in chemistry. And, and, and coining polarized uh to describe a certain feature of like poker strategic situations like if you could told if you could have told them that in 15 years like he'd be running a hedge fund and this word polarized would be 
you know, bandied about in Hearthstone. Like, you know, this guy Frodan would be talking about it in Hearthstone. Like, it, it, it's wild. I mean, how, like, chart that bit of influence? It's crazy to me. Yeah, this um, is actually, I, I did not realize, I mean, I'm not shocked, but I did not realize that uh, Jason Strasser was, like, the, the originator of that term. Yeah, I mean, he has, it's one of these things, like, he has other things in, po- like, if I had invented Polarized, you'd never hear the end of it, because I mean, I, <laughs> but, like, if you're Jason Strasser, you have other things that you've accomplished in poker that you can talk about. Um, yeah, he's pretty sure he did. He's pretty sure he did, and I think that's cool. Wow, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, wild. Um, all right, so here, this this actually, this question came to us. Someone DM'd you this on Twitter, um, and so I imagine you don't still know the name of the person who DM'd this to you, but hopefully they're listening. Uh, they said, hey, Nate, big fan of the podcast and recently started listening to the Weekend Warrior podcasts. I had a question regarding something you guys mentioned about fighting for blinds and dead money versus just folding until you get a big hand. This really resonated with me, as I feel like I'm guilty of the latter, waiting for a big hand, way too much, and I play close to a passive, scared fish, uh, afraid to stick it in any time unless I think I'm good. When you talk about uh, fighting for blinds and dead money, do you mean being more loose and aggressive to try to win the blinds and dead money in marginal spots, or just being more aggressive with solid hands to try to take it down preflop when there's more dead money in the pot? I'm new to live poker and find myself in a bunch of spots with an okay hand multi-way that I don't know how to play. Uh, yeah. No big question, big general question. Um, you want to say the first stuff, or should I? Um, I guess I'll, I'll. One thing I will say, and I don't think he's actually falling into this trap, but many people do, and he might be somewhat. Um, you know, aggression is not just about bluffing. I think sometimes people get the idea of like, oh, I'm not aggressive enough means I need to bluff more or something like that. Uh, you know, and, and so he mentions like often having an okay hand multi way. And, you know, a lot of fold equity, like fold equity isn't just about winning the pot um, or winning the pot immediately. You know, fold equity, especially pre-flop, fold equity is about causing, you know, getting the pot heads up or, or causing people to denying people the opportunity to make profitable calls. Um, so, you know, if, if somebody limps, choosing to raise instead of limp behind, even if you think the limper is not very likely to fold or, you know, you're fairly confident, like, well, someone's going to call if I raise, you know, even if you think that's likely true, there's still value in raising because you want fewer people to call and some hands benefit more from this than others. So like when you have pocket threes, you don't necessarily benefit that much from getting the pot heads up. Um, you do to some degree, but not as much as you would if you had a hand like Ace-10 offsuit or something, where Ace-10 offsuit like really does not play well multi-way. Even when you make a pair, you don't have a hand that's very good for contesting a multi-way pot. With pocket threes, when you make a set, you often do have a hand that's good enough to uh, to compete in a, in a multi-way pot, which is why you care a little bit less about getting it multi-way. If you have like 6-3 suited, you care a little bit less about getting it heads up. Um, so there are some hands that benefit more from this than, than others. And I mean, this is not all that there is to fold equity or playing more aggressively but um i mean i certainly as is part of it you know everything in, in poker is a risk reward it's not just about you know wait until i'm fairly certain i'm going to win the pot before i put any money in there there are plenty of situations where it's correct to put money in the pot when you're not a favorite to win just because you're getting pot odds and then you know once you are putting money in the pot you have to ask yourself the question if I'm going to put money in the pot one way or the other, um, do I benefit from fold equity? And if so, you know, can I actually generate fold equity by being the aggressor? Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, 
another basic thing I would say is that, you know, especially if you're less experienced um, at at poker, it can be a bit deceiving that when people post blinds and, and in some home games, even when they post antis, like that money stays right in front of them, when in fact they have no special claim to it anymore. And, and part of fighting for the dead money is realizing that it really is dead, like the big blind posts a dollar and you raise to three dollars like like that that dollar is out there so the big blind only has to call two more dollars instead of three so in that sense the big blind is getting some sort of strategic benefit from having that money out there but you know this is one thing that playing online makes nice and intuitive like that dollar fifty is in the middle and and there's no particular reason to believe in a lot of cases that anybody else has any better chance to win it than you do so like the money is out there and you've got to fight for it and it's a very like fundamental uh thing but um i i think it's one of the first uh sort of conceptual leaps or 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 sort of step changes in understanding that a lot of people have to undergo when they learn poker is is this idea of it not being just a slot machine and not just making a hand and seeing if you win and not just playing tight eventually and seeing if you win but actually like what's the money doing out there and like how it if i try to fight for this money do i have a pretty good chance of getting it good enough to justify my fighting for it the answer a lot of times is yes yeah you know i, I would encourage like if you imagine a situation where so I think kind of the, the inverse of what you said is just because you don't have money in front of you, like even a pot where you're not in the blinds and you know it's a game without ante, so you didn't you didn't contribute anything to the pot. That doesn't mean that you lose nothing by folding, right? Whether or not you put the money out there, you have an interest in the pot. You have equity in the pot when you are holding cards, and once you fold your cards, you lose that equity. So if you imagine a scenario where it folds to you in the cutoff. Right, so now there's three players behind you. If everyone just has random hands, you know you have at least a 25% chance of being the player who wins this pot. Uh, quite possibly more because your position is better than either of the blinds. But you know something like 25% of the pot, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% of the pot belongs to you right now. Uh, that doesn't mean now you're not going to be able to. I mean, obviously, like once you look at your cards, uh, your expectation is going to increase to you know greater or less than twenty five percent. But like no matter how bad your cards are, even if you have seven two offsuit, I mean you're still giving away I don't know ten to fifteen percent of the pot when you fold. That doesn't mean that I mean you don't have really have a better option with seven two offsuit. In all likelihood, it's not profitable for you to do anything other than fold. And it's just the money that you would have to put out there in order to find out whether you have the best hand does not justify. You know, it's not commensurate with uh, the likelihood that you that you are in fact going to be the player who wins the pot, which wouldn't necessarily have to mean showing down the best hand. It could mean you know betting and causing your opponents to fold. But when you have something like 9-7 uh, suited, I mean, even though you might not be a favorite to have the best hand or a favorite to win the pot, but once you factor in that there's already some money out there uh, and that there's a fair chance that one or more players will fold if you raise and even if you do get called by hand that's better than yours you might outflop them or you might bet and cause them to fold like there are quite a few things that can happen i mean i actually remember this i think actually now that we're talking about jason strasser i think i even had kind of an aha moment you know long ago from a hand that he posted on two plus two um i don't know if it was i think it was a tournament but i was mostly playing sit and goes at the time i think he posted this in the mtt forum which i was keeping an eye on because i was aspiring to play bigger tournaments and you know, he posted a hand where he raised like 
seven six suited on the button, or maybe it's even weaker. It might even been like seven five suited on the button pre ante, and that just made no sense to me. I was like, well, I mean, just stealing the blinds isn't worth anything, and if you do get called, you just have seven high. Like, what is even the point of of raising this hand? Like, I just I didn't understand. I didn't understand poker, basically. <laughs> like, I was in that camp of... And that was kind of how people advised you to play sitting goes at the time. It was just like, fold, 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 wait until antis, wait until the bubble, wait until you're short. Um, I mean, I, I just... I really didn't understand the idea of, uh, of of fighting for dead money at all. And I, I was like... I think it was kind of, kind of eye-opening to me to learn why he would make a raise like that. Yeah, I had a sort of analogous, but much more intense... But also related experience, probably at that time, Alex and Jason were talking poker, Alex Jacob, um, and I think they, they, they were both active in, in the same sub-circles of 2 plus 2. And I was like, I remember, like, I thought I knew some things about poker, and then I watched Alex play some tournaments, and it was, cra- like, it, it was almost indescribable it was like i was watching somebody play a different game like i was i was stuck in 2005 and he was five years ahead i mean in in some respects he really was five years ahead and uh yeah yeah um he raised a lot let's just say (laughs) (laughs) i mean the the one trap i would warn against here i'm sorry i've 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 suggested some traps that you can get out of by thinking in terms of like fold equity and dead money there is one trap that people fall into sometimes where after they lose a pot like if they had the if they had a strong hand you know pre-flop or on the flop or something and then they end up getting drawn out on it whatever then sometimes they'll say like oh well if i just bet bigger on the flop you know maybe he would have folded that bottom pair and he wouldn't have made two pair or something like that you know you it's not as simple as just like you have less interest in in winning the pot immediately when you have a strong hand already that doesn't i mean there are other reasons to bet like you want to um you want to make the pot larger if you are a favorite to win it but when we're talking about fold equity actually like the more vulnerable your hand is <laughs> the, the less certain it is that you hold the best hand the more that you value fold equity um so i mean the the weakest hands are the ones that benefit the most from fold equity that doesn't mean that you should just raise every time you have a weak hand because like it's not that easy to get fold equity like other people don't want to give up their equity in the pot either so you know it's not like you can just raise in most cases you can't just like better raise with any two cards and take a pot anytime you want it but i think a lot of people tend to focus too much on like how can i make sure that i win the pot when i already probably have the best hand and not enough on how can i increase my odds of winning the pot when i have a marginal hand and that's often where where um fold equity is is more relevant yep uh, so thanks to our anonymous, or he, I, mean, I don't know that he was anonymous at the time, he or she was anonymous at the time, but they're anonymous now. Uh, but thank you for contributing what I think was an interesting question. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to say on that topic, Nate? Um, I mean, unless we want to talk all day, which we could, but, you know, it's uh, <laughs> without, without getting into Warholian territory. No, I think we did a good job. Let's talk. Let's go on to the next question. Yeah, so here's, here's a hand history where I think... Um, I, I think there, there's maybe a little bit of overlap with that question. This one is coming to us from Chad. Chad says, long-time listener, first-time writer, caller, whatever. Apologies for the long post. Uh, feel free to cut for clarity or brevity. I probably will. Uh, you guys are awesome. We're not, I'm not going to cut this part out. You guys are awesome, and I love not only the strategy stuff in the interviews, but also the book, podcast, and music suggestions. I discovered some fantastic new stuff based on your recommendations. So thanks for enriching not just my poker EV, but also my life EV. Now onto the hand. 
I'm playing 2-5 at Tampa Hard Rock, which is notoriously soft, but I'm typically a 1-2 or 1-3 player, and I've been, tipping, I've been dipping my toe into 2-5 lately. I should say this hand was sent some time ago. Um, this, he was probably playing pre-pandemic. Um, I've also been making my way through Weekend Warrior Premium Podcast the second time, and I've been wanting to try some things out at 2-5. Anyway, uh, game is... Oh, nope. <laughs> game is 7 max because of COVID, uh, but currently only 5-handed at the table. Plexiglass dividers, everyone's wearing masks. Rake is very friendly, only $3 plus a $1 jackpot. It's a very limp-happy table. Um... I'm sitting on 650. Uh, the buy-in is a thousand, but I tend to buy in for 500 because I'm uh, more comfortable playing 100 big blinds, especially being new to Man, take five. Good, good for you. Good yeah, for I, you. I, I, I good like for that you. Part a lot. That's fantastic. Ah, oh, man, that warms my heart. Warms my heart. There's also the old Barry Greenstein point that like. You can add on. You can't like if all of a sudden the better stack turns out to be 500. You can't. You, you can't take half your stack off the table. Mm-hmm. So, good. Ah, warms my heart. Good. <laughs> uh, so our hero has 650. Main villain in this hand, the button, has about 300. Uh, there are... He doesn't say how many limpers. Um, he just says limps to the hero in the small blind with ace-nine of spades. Hero raises to $25. Everyone calls. Um... So he says, my thinking at the time, a standard open was to uh, $15 or $20 based on position. I would adjust if there were limpers. As soon as I made it 25 I realized it was too small. I should have made it 30 or 35 or maybe just completed the 5 uh, And then he's asking for our thoughts at this decision point. So unfortunately, we don't know exactly who all the limpers are and where, but it sounds like at least the button has limped. Our hero's in the small blind with ace-nine of spades, and I would guess there's at least one other limper. I mean, how would you think about, or like, would it matter, essentially, like, where the limps are coming from? Would you you think this should just be a raise regardless, or, you know, under what circumstances would you want to raise versus complete with uh, ace-nine suited in the small blind? Ooh, it's been a long time since I thought through poker situations carefully. I, I would rather raise this in in the game conditions he describes against late position limpers. Um, when you're playing against a weaker field, people will limp call in early position sometimes with aces that dominate yours. That's that's really the biggest thing we're worried about. If we well, that's not even true, um, you know, if we raise and get called, it's it's pretty bad to get called by ace queen. Yeah, is that even true? Um, you know, it's less good than some other things to get called by, you know, to get limp called by Ace Queen. Uh, if I, I like this better, the later position the limps are, because Ace Nine suited does a lot better when called um, against weaker hands. Um, I think there's an argument to be made for just calling. Um, your hand plays well multi way. Um, a lot of people will limp fold aces you dominate um and getting those folds is fine but it's not as good because you dominate those hands um what else what else what else yeah if you're gonna raise like really raise i would raise the same amount i would raise with jacks or queens or aces or whatever i only have one raise size in this spot and i don't know how many limpers there were but um, if it's more than one, then I'm making it more than 25. That's for sure. Honestly, uh, even against just one, I want to make it more than 25. Like when you're yeah. when you're going to be out of position and you're fairly certain you have the best hand, like there's no. I, I think it's hard to go too big in this situation. I mean, a lot hinges on being fairly certain you have the best hand, but 
you know, like let's just let's just suppose that we somehow knew no one is ever limping a better hand than ace nine of spades. It's just like against the rules of the game. They're not allowed to limp better hands than ace nine of spades. So like you're guaranteed to have the best hand. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible the right raise size is just all in. Like, oh, definitely. I, I mean, mean, just winning, winning play, the pot immediately is just so go good. All in. Yeah. Give, give me the pot. No, certainly, of course. Yeah. Like, that That's not even close. Like, if you're guaranteed that they don't have better than ace-nine, there's no... I mean, I could be wrong, but the, I I would bet you a lot of money that the right play is to move all in. Like, h- how can it not be? Like... Yeah, I mean, you win. this is like this is what we mean about fighting for dead money. You know, there's like yeah. it's there, there's, like, there's a lot of value in just picking this pot up pre-flop. And I know people tend to think like if you're not thinking in terms of EV, and it's temp- like especially when you play live poker, it's tempting not to. You know, it, it's you're winning twenty twenty five dollars. Like it doesn't feel like it's like if you're thinking in terms of like how's my night going? Like I'm up three hundred dollars or I'm down three hundred. Like winning twenty five dollars is not going to get me even. Like that is entirely the wrong way to think about poker. Um, I mean, I know it doesn't feel like much to win twenty five dollars because you know it's impossible to win you know five hundred or a thousand dollars in a single pot, and you're thinking like, oh, it's nine of spades. I want to try to set up like flush over flush. Like that's a lot to ask for <laughs> flush over flush um you know winning 25 dollars immediately or more than that is a fantastic outcome it is much better than playing ace nine suited out of position in a raised pot even against the hand that you're ahead of um you know playing out of position is is tough so if you limp you're going to definitely be playing out of position if you raise um there's still a fair chance someone's going to call you and you're going to play out of position so i mean you really value the fold equity if you can get it um and then getting called is sort of like the reason we're doing this with ace nine of spades and not seven two offsuit is that you know, ace nine of spades is also going to play reasonably well when it's called but like this is almost like a semi bluff even though we expect to have the best hand it's kind of like a semi bluff where a lot of the value comes from folds and then you know we'll just make the best of it if we do get called i think a lot of people worry too much about um oh, what am i going to do if i get called and you know and i miss the flop like i mean yeah not every situation is good like it's really good when people fold it's really good when people call and you do get a piece of the flop if people call and you don't get a piece of the flop like you're not going to do so well in that situation that doesn't mean that you made a mistake by raising it just means that you know there are good outcomes and bad outcomes and this is one of the bad ones yeah i think i've mentioned this somewhat recently but one of my favorite malmuthisms i think it's a malmuthism is he he in one of his essays he says like look at a 2040 limit hold'em game and just sort of squint your eyes he doesn't say it this way here's how i think of it like squint your eyes at the table all you see are these like huge huge piles of red chips thousands and thousands of dollars just red chips all over the place just my thousands and thousands of dollars what what what's it all there for well it's all there to fight over 30 bucks you know <laughs> like it's all there to fight over six chips that go in the pot every hand like it's a remarkable thing right when you think about it uh, and that's you know of course that's limit and not low limit and there's a lot to say there and you know it's not all for one hand but still you get the idea and think about a no limit game etc you know all that fight over you know seven little dollars it, but but that's necessary that's how the game is so yeah bottom line is i think a lot hinges on how confident are you that ace nine is like very well ahead of people's limping ranges as you said nate the more that we're talking about early position limpers the greater the risk is that someone is limping with some 
pretty strong hands. Um, but you know, if, if this is just, I mean, he describes this in general as a very limp happy game. So if this is a game where just people are limping a lot, even if you think they will limp aces, I mean, aces don't come around very often, right? Like as long as they're limping, if they're limping like 40% of the deck, ace nine zero is doing quite well against that. Even though, you know, there is some chunk of their range that you're not ahead of, you know, you are ahead of enough of it that you want to be raising against a range like that. So it's really only when you think someone has like a pretty strong limping range that I would start considering not raising with this. Ace nine offsuit is a different story because it's much harder to play when you get called. Like the suitedness really does a lot to improve the playability of your hand after the flop. So I would consider ace nine offsuit a much less mandatory raise, although certainly an option. If this was just like button open limps, I want to be raising with ace nine offsuit. Um, ace nine suited, I'm going to be a lot more liberal about circumstances in which I will uh, raise from out of position into a field of limpers. Yep. Um, so he raises to 25. I mean, we do think it should be bigger, quite possibly a lot bigger, but uh, you know, he's at least on board with the idea that it should be bigger, so we won't give him too hard of a time over that. Um, he gets called. He says everyone calls. Um, so <laughs> I'm, again, not entirely sure who everyone is. Um, let's assume it's like big blind middle position and button. So we're going to go four ways to the flop. Our hero holding ace nine of spades, $100 in the pot. And the flop is jack nine six with two spades. Actually, sorry, he says there's 125 in the pot. So I guess we have uh, two, you know, the two field callers, the button, the big blind, and then our hero in the small blind with ace nine of spades. So we're five ways to the flop. There's $125 in the pot. Jack nine six with two spades. Hero has ace nine of spades. Uh, what do you think? Better check. <laughs> what are stacks like here? What are stacks like here? Um, the main thing well, we, we don't... know, the button has about 300. Our hero has 650. I guess we should, do, let's just assume everyone else covers the hero. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so I'm going to want to, so let's think about this. I mean, we've got like a, a really flexible hand, as they say, like, we have we have, we have, we have middle pair in the nut flush draw, right? I've never seen this hand before, so this is right. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. yes. Okay, good. Um, so let's think about our range. Like we have a hand that could, in theory, like it's not like we would love to take down what's in the middle, like um, which I guess is a non-obvious point, but I think it's pretty obvious. Like, I mean, if if, if we know the everybody else has nothing or exactly like really bad flush draws, then we don't want to just take down what's in the middle. But um, in a lot of cases, like we'll be happy to take down what's in the middle. Are we really folding out better hands? Sometimes we can fold out better hands. But my point is we should think about our range and what we want our range to be doing because we can um, effectively, yeah, because we can play this hand in a way that's not a priori crazy. Um, in a lot of ways and i can think of a lot of hands that do want folds so we have a hand that's happy to get all in and is also happy not to get all in this board is not great for a pre-flop razor like if we had ace 10 suited or ace 8 suited you would usually not be very good um three quarters of the time we would have nothing and one quarter of the time we would have a naked flush draw and then at net naked flush draw would be good but you know um a lot, lot worse without the pair. Um, if we had aces, would we start by betting or checking? So my sort of conjecture is that um, we're going to need to do a give up check a fair amount. And because of that, we're going to want to check raise all in 
given stacks also with some of our best hands and because of that and also because we don't want to give a free card but we don't fear it that that much um we should check planning to raise a lot um with this hand too but you know who am i kidding it's a pandemic i don't really play poker these days is that crazy <laughs> uh, i mean i definitely want to start with a check um and i like the way that you're thinking about it whether or not to raise i mean i think one of the advantages of checking is that you're not committing to anything yet so you know yeah. there's four people behind us a lot of different things could happen like you can't even really describe all the different possible cases by the time the action gets back to us uh you know it could be there's just a single bet. There could be no bet. It could be, you know, there's bet raise raise. Like lots of different things could happen by the time it gets yeah. around us. So one of the advantages of checking is just, you know, we can we can see and we can decide. Like, do we think we're going to benefit from raising? What does it seem like people have? Um, I think you just, as you say, a priori. Like we're starting. We're at a position in a five way pot. We're going to have to do a lot of checking. I mean, there's plenty of hands yeah. that were strong enough to raise preflop that we don't want to, like, if you have ace-king, no spade on this board, even if you have ace-king with spades, but certainly if you have ace-king with no spade, like, you do not want to be betting at this flop. This is not just like, well, I raised preflop, going to have to bet. Um, yeah. You know, like, you, there, you yeah. have a lot of very strong hand, hands that were very strong preflop that you're now checking and most likely just folding, which give you just immediately a lot of incentive to check other kinds of hands as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... Imagine you don't know what you have. You're just an onlooker in this hand, and somebody raises out of position, looks like he has the best hand before the flop, then he's in a five-way pot, and the flop comes down jack-nine-x two-tone. Like, often you're just pointing and laughing at that guy, especially <laughs> if you don't like it very much, right? So, like, you know, that, that that's where to start with this hand, is that everybody is pointing and laughing at you, and you usually just got wamboozled by this flop. Okay, so start by checking. Um... I mean, in all likelihood, like, I think there's a fair chance I would just check and call. Like, I would be pretty worried if someone is betting into this many player. Like, I think it checks around quite often. And I, I want to ask, you know, I, I, I sort of mentioned in passing at the end of our previous question, um, asking yourself, am I going to put money in this pot? And if so, will I benefit from fold equity? So here, I mean, the answer to the first question is very obviously yes. I and mean, we could apply this test preflop as well. I mean, like preflop, we're certainly not folding ace, nine of spades in, in the small blind when there's been no raise yet. Uh, so we're definitely putting money in. And then it's just a question of like, if we're going to put money in one way or the other, do we want fold equity? Preflop, I think we very much do. You know, we're at a position, we have an end that could easily be uh, outflopped. And that's why I would pretty seriously consider raising preflop. On the flop, again, like we have a hand where we very obviously, you know, it would take a lot for me not to be putting money in on this flop. Like, I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a circumstance where I would be check folding this. Um, so the question then is, like, how much do we benefit from fold equity? I don't think very much. Um, I don't think there are, I mean, so on the one hand, you could look and say, like, well, there are many draws on this board. Yes, but those are not folding. Like, if you bet here, you're not causing a hand like 8-7 to fold. I mean, there are other reasons you might want to bet in 8-7, like that you're a pretty good-sized favorite against it. But um, you, you're not benefiting from fold equity, I don't think, very much by betting. Um, if someone has, let's say, I mean, I wouldn't even expect really like a king-queen of diamonds kind of hand to fold. Just, you know, a, a gut shot with two over cards. Um I, I, I mean, that hand has, that, that's a hand you would like to fold. I mean, it has pretty good equity against you, but even that is not doing amazingly well against you. Like, one of the kings, one of the queens, one of the tens, those are all spades. So, you know, you end up coolering them. Like, not only are you not losing that pot, but you're probably winning the pot plus at least one more bet from that player. 
Um, there's just, you know, it, it's unlikely that anyone is holding two over cards. Um, if they are, they often have some kind of draw. None of the good draws are folding. I mean, the, the kind of equity we're denying to people is often like a single over card or a gut shot or something. We're really not causing people to fold a lot of equity. Now, in a four-way pot, if we knew that like every single player had a single live over card or a gut shot and we could cause each of them to fold, you know, eight to 15% equity, you add that across four people, that adds up to something real. But um, it's not likely that the card distribution is, is like that. And although our hand is going to be in perfectly fine shape when we get action, I'm not really expecting to be a big favorite if we get a lot of action here either. I mean, if we if we play a big pot against the hand like King Jack, I think we're a small favorite against King Jack, but it's not like we're printing money by getting all in against King Jack. I mean, we have a hand that is is pretty good. It's not that interested in playing a huge pot yet. I mean, we might end up being interested in playing a huge pot if we make the nuts, but like right now, we're not a favorite to make the nuts. More often than not, we are not going to have the nuts on the river. More often than not, we're going to have middle pair on the river. And um, you know, that's not a reason to, to grow a huge pot. Yeah, I like that a lot. All right, so here's what our uh, correspondent says. He says, this is a great flop for my actual hand. Without fearing a raise, I think a C-bet is in order, but it doesn't need to be super large, so I bet $50. I think it's a good hand for my range as well, as I can certainly, I think he means a good board, for my range as I can certainly hold a lot of suited connected-ish cards that interact well with this board. Of course, that means it also interacts pretty well with the million callers. Still, I can get value from worse nines, all draws, and build a pot for when the flush draw hits. Plus, being out of position, I need to bet my flush draws, I think, because it's super obvious when those hit. I also don't fear a raise with my, my nut flush draw, and I'm prepared at these stacks to get it in on the flop. Uh, not sure if that's actually correct, but that was my initial thought. So, I mean, you've heard our thoughts on this already. The one thing that I'll add here is I think a lot of people make their state betting decisions this way. Uh, I, I've, I've, I hear this very frequently from people writing into the show and people I coach and, and everything else. They just describe their hand. You know, they're like, well, you know, I flopped top pair, so I bet. I flopped middle pair in a flush draw, so I bet. Right? I mean, just telling me what your hand is is not by itself a reason to bet. I think really the question you want to be asking is, what am I accomplishing with this bet? What hands am I hoping to get called by? What hands am I hoping to cause, pe cause people to fold? So to his credit, he does do some of that. I mean, he talks about some hands he could be ahead of um, that, are, that are going to call. I mean, I think the, the, the problem is there are, it's probably more likely that someone has a jack than that they have a dominated nine. Um, you're not making that much money betting into a hand like eight, seven. You're a favorite, but you're not that big of a favorite. Plus you're out of position. There might even be some spots where you get successfully bluffed by eight, seven. You know, if, um, if, if the turn, if the, you know, if the board runs out like king, queen, eight, seven might bluff you out. So I can imagine some situations where even though you technically have the best hand, you, um, you end up losing the pot to a, to a hand that's inferior to yours, which is one of the liabilities of building a pot when you have a marginal hand. Uh, I mean, he's right that you don't mind getting raised, but that doesn't mean that you want to get raised. Um, so, I mean, I, like what this would come down to for me is just that I don't think we benefit all that much from fold equity, nor do we benefit all that much from making the pot larger. You know, he says, I want to make a, the pot larger for when the flush hits. Well, my question is going to be, what about when the flush doesn't hit? which is the more common situation. <laughs> like Most of the time, the flush is not going to get there. In those cases, are you going to be happy you made the pot larger? I don't think so. Yep. And 
the stack to pot ratio is not very large here, so the rare events don't matter yeah. quite as much. Yeah, and like there's like more the, opportunities to make the pot large once the flush comes in. Like with a lot of money behind, you have more interest in building the pot because you'll need to make or you'll, you you would benefit from making larger value bets when you make the nuts. When you're dealing with a low stack to pot ratio, like you can make the nuts and then still try to get all the money in with just one or two bets, even if you didn't grow the pot on the flop. Yep, I like that a lot. Um, so he bets and is called only by the button. So we're now heads up with that player who started with a $300 stack, which means now he has about 225 and there's also 225 in the pot. The turn is the two of diamonds, making the board jack, nine, six, deuce with two spades. And the diamond is not a backdoor flush draw, he said. Uh, our hero is holding ace, nine of spades. Heads up, stack to pot ratio one. Um, and now he chooses to check. He says, uh, maybe this should be a bet to protect against the straight draws like queen 10, 10, eight, gut shots. Um, perhaps this is my one three brain, but while I'd be okay with a raise and could keep some money in on the flop, I'm not as interested when the turn bricks and there's only one card to come. Is that flawed thinking and should I be interested in the fold equity slash protection that comes from betting the turn? Um, I mean, I think you're right that you're not that interested in playing a big pot on the turn. Um, and kind of the point that I want to make here is like, this is something to realize on the flop, right? So um, you know, the, the turn is going to be a card like the two of diamonds a lot more than it's going to be a card like the two of spades, right? There's, there's more turns where you're going to say, I don't really want to make this pot large than there are going to be turns where you say, I do want to make this pot large, which is why you don't want to make it large on the flop because like more often than not, you're not going to want to be making it large on the turn. And this is kind of, I mean, people have been listening to the show recently, like this has been a theme on some recent strategy segments where people grow the pot on an early street with what I consider an ill-advised C-bet and that were check raise or whatever. And then like later in the hand on a very predictable run out, like not, you know, there's nothing special about the two of diamonds. It's just a, a, a brick, you know, on a fairly predictable run out there, then like, oh, I'm not comfortable with the size of the pot anymore. It's like the time to think about that is before you grow the pot. You don't want to grow the pot and then get to the turn and be like, oh, I don't love playing a big pot with this. I guess I'll check. Because at this point, the stack to pot ratio is one. Like, are you going to check fold? Probably not. So, I mean, he can just put all the money in if he wants to. I mean, the, the button could just go all in. It's only a pot size bet. So you know, there, there's really no pot controlling at this point. The, the pot is out of control. The pot will be as big as the button wants it to be. Um, I mean, I still kind of like checking because I don't think you benefit very much from folds, but I just think like a lot of the logic for checking the turn also applies to the flop. Yeah, I agree. All right, uh, so they do both check. Um, what do you make of villain checking back on the turn? I think villain has a draw sometimes and has a weak made hand sometimes and also has a weak check sometimes. Like I think he had a good, so there are a lot of hands that limp behind preflop that call a small bet closing the action on the flop that do not beat ace nine suited. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people will even peel gutters in that spot. Like if he had king 10, like put put king 10 offsuit in the hands of an average 2-5 player like he should raise that pre-flop but maybe he doesn't raise a zillion calls he's probably calling if he didn't raise the first time and then the flop comes there's a bet like i don't know is he really gonna fold probably not now on the turn does he want to bluff maybe not i don't know i think we're kind of yeah um so i think like sometimes he has a better jack he just doesn't feel like 
committing his stack to on the turn, which makes some sense. Um, but a lot of like his range is still pretty wide here. Yeah, I like that. And I think I think if he has a jack, he often should just get it in like because he because the stack to pot ratio is so low like by the time even on the flop like once the hero bets and everyone else folds and it's on the villain if he has a hand like king jack or ace jack or something um it's hard for me to see him like calling and not getting the money in on later streets i mean maybe there's some turns he's gonna fold but like for the most part i think once he sees the turn with spr1 he's he should probably just be stacking off with a good top pair anyway so I think there's a pretty good case for him to just like raise and get it in on the flop or when the when our hero checks the turn um that the villain you know, probably should be betting if he has something like king jack or ace jack i understand that a lot of people are you know passive enough that they're not doing that you know that, that the villain might be kind of thinking in the same way that the hero is where he's just like well you know i have king jack but i'm not sure it's good so i'll just check and i guess that's not really what our hero is thinking but in any event i can see a lot of people thinking that you're just saying like well i have king jack but i'm not sure it's good so i'll just check like not not really appreciating the value of um, you know, aggression and, and fold equity in, in, in this kind of case, um, or you know, at least denying our hero the opportunity to to play the river, which is on balance going to be bad for the king jack. Like there are more bad rivers for king jack than there are good ones for sure. Um, so I don't think it's impossible that he has a hand like king jack or ace jack. I think anything better than that is going to show some aggression, right? I think if the villain has two pair or better, I think he's certainly either raising the flop or betting the turn. It's very hard for me to imagine him holding two pair or a set and taking this line. So I, I mean, I think I even want to discount, you know, jacks somewhat, but I certainly want to discount hands stronger than a jack. So I feel fairly good about hero having the best hand at this point it's far from a lock but like i think there's a pretty good chance our hero has the best hand i mean i don't know like 70 80 percent of the time hero has the best hand yeah i like that a lot i like that a lot i yeah uh river is the three of hearts so still uh 225 dollars in the pot 225 dollars in the effective stacks um, final board, Jack, nine, six, deuce, tray. There were two spades on the flop, but there are no flushes possible on the river. Our hero has ace, nine, four, second pair, top kicker, and a busted flush draw. Uh, first off, should the hero bet? Yeah. Uh, sometimes. I mean, you have a canonical bluff catcher, but, like, we're ahead so often on the turn. I... There are definitely a lot of people I would value about this against and turn my hand over real fast if I got called uh, <laughs> and laugh. Um, but I think the the book play is to check. Um, partly because he could have so many busted draws and, you know, sometimes he checks behind or bets smaller with a better hand and that's good for you. Um yeah i would i think i would i think start by checking i mean the problem is that there aren't that many like weak made hands a lot of the made hands are so weak that they can't value bet against you like if he bets you have a bluff catcher like he's probably not value betting anything worse than ace nine whether or not he should um so do we want to turn our hand into a bluff catcher? In theory, maybe, maybe not. Eh. We bet into five people on the flop, so like we showed so much strength. I think we have to start by checking. But, but, but you know, 
that doesn't mean there aren't people you should you shouldn't bet against. So. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the way I'm leaning to. Like I think from a hand reading perspective, at this point, it seems a lot more likely the villain has either a busted flush draw or a made hand that might be so weak that he's not going to call much of river bet anyway. I mean, maybe you can bet something like fifty dollars and he'll you know, shrug and call. But like I think if you do bet, you probably have to bet pretty tiny because you need to be value targeting a, a quite weak hand. I mean the the. The most likely target really would be a worse nine, like nine eight. But it, you know, it's a pretty big problem that you block that. <laughs> um, so I think there's just just combinatorically, there are way more combinations of missed draws than there are combinations of like worse marginal hands that are going to call a bet from you. I think um, that doesn't automatically make checking better. Uh, I mean, this villain has played very passively throughout the hand. I mean, he declined to raise preflop. He declined to raise the flop. He declined to bet the turn. Uh, I mean. I'm not super optimistic that he's going to be bluffing rivers a lot when check two. So, I mean, you can certainly construct an opponent who, like, if he literally never checks the river and he will call small river bets with worse made hands, even if he rarely has worse made hands, you'd still want to bet against him just because you make no money by checking. Right? I mean, it goes check-check very often and you win, but, like, if he does bet, you're not happy about it. So even though he's going to hold a lot of busted draws, you still have to ask yourself the question, do I actually think this player will bluff with a busted draw? I mean, exploitatively, I'd be pretty tempted to check because I do think this player's range is very weighted towards busted draws, so it would be easy for him to make the mistake of bluffing too much. But you still want to do the gut check of, you know, do I actually think this player is is going to make that mistake? But I mean, I, I think you're right that there's really not a... There's not a particularly appealing value target. This hand is kind of weak in an absolute sense. We are showing a lot of strength, betting into five people on the flop and then betting again on the turn, or sorry, betting again on the river. The villain really doesn't have that much incentive to call us with um, with worse, but I do think like your average poker player is more likely to make loose mistakes than passive mistakes, and that argues for value betting. Yeah. Or, sorry, to more than make aggressive mistakes. Um, our hero checked... Uh, the villain bet 125 into a pot of 225, leaving himself 100 behind. And Chad says, uh, all the main draws missed. I really only lose to 4-5 and any jack, and I guess the random two-pair and super slow-played sets, but those don't make any sense. I struggle to find many jacks in his range that don't bet the turn after I check. Same with two pairs and sets. Um, I also discounted the two pairs and sets because of the relative connectedness and flushiness of the board. I think those generally raise flop or bet turn to protect. But that leaves a lot of straight draw combos. This particular player could literally have 50-60% of the deck uh, because of his pre-flop limp. Um, He's going to peel with anything he limped uh, after there's three callers. so he's talking about pre-flop. Uh, I tanked for a while, but in the end, I feel this type of player isn't betting a jack here and would likely be forced to bluff any missed draws. I didn't love having the two spades in my hand because of those block flush draws, but again, I thought straight draws were more likely, so here we are. Uh, I felt my second pair was good enough to bluff catch, so I called. Um, I think that's very good analysis. You know, I, I like the getting into specifics of rather than just saying, like, he might be bluffing, so I called, right? You're really drilling down and saying, what are the hands that he might be bluffing with? Um, doing some hand reading to, because I mean, then we also have to ask, is he bluffing out of proportion to his value betting? So I like that Chad is doing the hand reading of saying, well, actually, a lot of the hands with value bets seem kind of unlikely. His lineup to this point is very consistent with him having a missed draw, less consistent with him having a value hand. And um, then considering his own cards and saying, okay, I recognize that I have actually kind of some bad blockers. I mean, the nine of spades isn't really a problem because nine of spades isn't blocking his bluffs. The ace of spades is maybe blocking some bluffs, but um, 
you know, I think it's good that he's considering those things and then making a conscious choice that he still wants to bluff catch, despite having a slightly less than ideal bluff catching hand. I think he's thinking about this in, you know, in, in all the right ways. Yeah. I would just add that the ace blocks ace jack, which matters. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, no, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I mean, if he's got that much of the deck preflop, it's probably exploitive to fold a hand this good. I think you just have to shrug and call. Um, pardon me, still wants to think about raising. Like I wouldn't raise, but it's not. It's not like. <laughs> You know, once in a while he folds a jack, and once in a while, and, and and you know, much more often he can't fold his, you know, like pocket fours or whatever. Um, but you know, it, it's a bad idea, but one that's like if he's got that much of the deck before the flop, then in theory, there's you know, you at least have to think about raising. But don't raise, don't actually do that. But you know, it's where my mind's at. Where my mind's at. Yeah, you have to call pretty much the reasons our correspondent says and yeah i like the hand i like the hand i mean you know except for the parts i don't like <laughs> well even even those were useful from a from a teaching perspective those are they're teaching yeah. opportunities yeah certainly certainly uh yeah perfect perfect hand to write in with uh, and I have results, which is always a bonus on hands that people write in with uh the villain had seven five of clubs for a missed gut shot um yeah Yep. So, I mean, not that that should be swaying our decision too much. I guess, actually, so there was one thing that Chad said that I disagreed with a little bit. He said that the villain was going to be forced to bet his mistrals. Uh, I mean, it could be true that the player is going to, like, feel obliged to bet his, his mistrals. He certainly is not forced to. Um, you know, I, I do think this is a, a common error in thinking. Like, I, I do think people sometimes leap too much from the, like, this player has a, you know, a, a, a range that's thick in weak hands, and then concluding, you know, therefore this player is bluffing a lot. I mean, it is entirely possible. And I said, like, th- there's a there's a misconception that, like, polarized ranges are weak. You know, some, sometimes people will say this, like, you know, I, I thought villain was polarized, and of course it's easier to have a weak hand than a strong hand, so I called. Right? Now, that I, I think is, is not a cogent argument um because people are allowed to check their weekends so like no matter how many weekends a person sees the river with they can still make a perfectly balanced bet they just have to be pretty disciplined about checking a lot of those weekends now i understand that like this does not sound like a game where discipline rules the day um so like, there might be reasons to think that in fact your opponents are not doing that but uh i guess i did you know the the, the use of the word forced there rubbed me the wrong way a little bit just because it does tie in with what I think is a, a common misunderstanding about hand reading and bluffing. Like just because someone sees the river with a lot of weak hands is not a guarantee that they're going to bluff too much, although it is a reason to think that they might. The The temptation will be there. Yes, I agree. And I briefly forgot to unmute my microphone. <laughs> um, fantastic. But it was a pleasure. We should do this again soon. Yes.
Sean, Sean has Sean, Sean, Sean has a small penis. Okay, now now we've guaranteed that <laughs> either it'll be malicious or or like he won't accidentally leave all the audio in the show. <laughs> <laughs> How to ensure that, you know, like, <laughs> the first cut of trimming. Uh, yeah. uh, yes, this will indeed be episode 335, if you would care to bring us in. 